You know, in his uh, classic book, I've referred to it before, I love Chuck Colson's book called The Body. He writes that many Christians have been infected with the most virulent virus of modern American life, what sociologist Robert Bella calls a radical individualism. They concentrate, he says, on personal obedience to Christ as if all that matters is Jesus and me. But in doing so, he says they miss the point altogether. For Christianity is not a solitary belief system. Any genuine resurgence of Christianity, as history demonstrates, depends on a reawakening and renewal of that which is the essence of the faith. That is, the people of God. The new society. The body of Christ, which is made manifest in the world, the church. I think he's right. There can be, and we know this, there can be a very individualistic approach to our commitment to Jesus. And I think a part of that is, is our culture. We, we tend to be a culture of, of individuals. That's that rugged American individual spirit, at least as, as a part of our, our heritage. And I also believe that, that it happens because we think in terms of our faith as a private thing. Probably several factors that, that contribute to that are our personality, the, the model of, of faith uh, that we grew up in, the home in, in, in which we were a part of. The one thing I think also that plays a large part in that, in terms of, of keeping our faith kind of private, is our personal failure. Our failure to do those things that we know or at least think we should be doing. Can I tell you a story? I, Paul Larson, I think I've shared some of this with you. Paul Larson was the uh, president of our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, for many years. Paul's this big, tall fellow. And he's got this booming voice. And he had an interesting way of talking and, and pronouncing certain words. And, and you, it almost sounded like a little bit like he had an accent sometimes. And... So he was addressing this, this large gathering. We were all pastors. There was probably four or 500 of us sitting in this, this big room. And Paul was talking about the danger of having to do the things that people say we should do. And so he said, you know, he said, here's what happens. You know, and this is, this is Paul Larson, very prim, very proper man, you know, and, and we've all got the, the utmost respect for him. He says, you know, people say you should do this and you should do that. Here's something that you probably should not do. Here's something that you probably should do. And he said, you know, before you know it, you just have people shooting all over you. (laughs) And we all sat there, all 500 of us, kind of looking at one another like, did he just say what I think he said? Because of his language thing, it came out a little bit, yeah, more unclear than the way I just said it. But he's right. We need to be a people who should do 
what the Holy Spirit calls us to do and what the Word of God challenges us to. And yet I think sometimes one of the reasons that that we are such individuals about our faith, maybe I should just speak for myself, but you can probably put the shoe on because it'll fit, and that is the failures. We're we're just not that person that, that you think we are. I'm not that person that you think I am and vice versa. And, and, and failure plays a part of it. We take seriously our commitment to Christ. We're aware of those failures. We hate the fact that we fail. We have a keen desire to do better. We're going to pray more. We're going to study more. We're going to witness more. We're going to swear less. Whatever's on your list that goes pretty well right, for maybe a day, a couple of days, maybe a week. And then we fail again. And we feel badly. And so we start again. And again. And again. And and after doing that enough times, I think we develop a sense of shame and can feel pretty sure that we're never going to be more than just well-intentioned, never quite making it as followers of Christ. Because we're not measuring up to someone's list of shoulds. I had an awful thought this week. Thinking about this series and, and where we've been going and as we consider some of the more practical applications of what it means to, to die to self, to live for Christ, to be crucified with Christ. I thought, oh no. What if, what if this whole death to self, to be crucified with Christ theme becomes one more thing in our heads that we have to do for Jesus. So we get all fired up about it, and we, we do it for a while, and, and then we fail, and then we get fired up again, and we fail again. And, and then our, our, our failure to live faithfully as crucified to Christ just becomes one more thing that makes us feel badly about our commitment to Jesus. And then this other thought popped into my head, but wait, if if we're really talking about being crucified with Christ, dead to self, then as that begins to become more and more a part of my experience, as the Spirit of God begins to to infuse me with power to say yes to those things that he leads me to and no to those things that that he says to stay away from, then then I am growing in my ability to, to really be surrendered and dead to self And I don't need to feel badly about the failures because myself is no longer important. Does that make sense? It's only when the self is still alive that we feel bad about our failures. But when the self is dead, who cares? We need to get to that place. And I realize that perhaps in this series I haven't said enough about this being something that is generated by the Spirit of God. And I'm And I'm wrong if I haven't emphasized that enough. We must avoid the trap, and I think it is a trap, of trying to live out self-death under our own power. We cannot do that. It is the work of the Spirit in us. The Spirit comes from God to remind us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to convict us. The Spirit is in our lives to give us power to live as dead people. As strange as that sounds, that's why the Spirit of God is in us. And out of that then, 
flows the witness for who Jesus is that we often feel so badly about failing in. Francis Chan says, while every Christian wants to experience the power of the Holy Spirit, we often forget that the Spirit's power is given for the purpose of being His witness. And that is key. We can want the Spirit to work in us to be better witnesses, but I've got to say to you that even that can be suspect depending on what our motives are. That needs to be open to scrutiny in our lives as well. Oh, Spirit of living God, fill me so that I can be a better witness for you. What's behind that? So that I can come and tell you that I've been a better witness for Jesus. You see how even our best, most honorable expressions and desires can be feeding me, sense of me, sense of needing to be important, sense of self, sense of wanting you to think well of me. Isn't that where we live our lives so much of the time? There is a very subtle difference, I think. And again, it comes, we we understand that subtle difference when we are willing to, to stop and to open our hearts to the probing of the Spirit of God. The subtle difference between wanting something so that I can live a better life for Jesus and what I think that looks like versus being dead to self so that Jesus lives through me. Subtle, but significant. I think the ultimate measure of self-death is to be so filled and empowered by the Spirit that it just doesn't matter what happens. I'm not there. If you are, I want to know about it. We can talk about it quietly in a humble place, okay? <clears throat> doesn't matter. When we're dead to self, doesn't matter who thinks what. Doesn't matter about my successes or my failures, the good or the bad things that happen. Who does what to us or doesn't do what they said they would? It's all about responding to the circumstances and events and people in our lives in such a way that they are touched by the character of Jesus flowing from us no matter what. Wow. Our text this morning is in Romans 12. It's good preparation for communion, and I can't think of a better text in Scripture when it comes to just daily practical self-death. A couple of important things that we need to, to remember in this text. Paul has spent the previous 11 chapters in our book of Romans, originally a letter without chapters, but the chapters and the verses make it nice for us to to be able to study. So he spends the previous 11 chapters, working up to 12, making his case for the miracle of salvation. How incredible it is that God has saved us, making salvation possible for, for both the Jews, the Jews who had the law and that didn't work, And for the Gentiles who didn't have the law, God being no respecter of persons, Paul says, makes salvation available to both. That God did what people cannot do. He satisfied his own standard of righteousness through the death of his son. And then he rewards those who place their faith in Jesus 
to be their savior, he rewards them with salvation and adoption into his own family. And at the end of chapter 11, Paul has a doxology. Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He asks the question, who has known the mind of God? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's how Paul ends chapter 11 based on this, this survey of what God has done to bring salvation to lost people. And then he says this. Let's stand and read together from chapter 12. together. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. My sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord for us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Probably familiar words to to many of us. Good words, challenging words. You know, the living sacrifice thing, it's been said that the problem is is that the living sacrifice doesn't want to stay on the altar. And Paul, I'm sure, understood that. I'm sure that he, uh, he crawled off of that altar a few times himself. The language that Paul has used here in this, this text that we've read is, is a language of, of continual action to to put yourself on the altar regularly. Put yourself on the altar faithfully as often as it takes. It is a continuous action and it carries the sense, the language does, of of being a very deliberate, 
uh, not accidental, but deliberate, de- deliberate and, and intelligent decision. It's a commitment that is made in response to God's mercy. Now, what's interesting is Paul has twisted the idea just a little bit because the Roman believers, in, in the, the believers in the, in the church of Rome, they would have, coming from very pagan culture, which was full of, of sacrifices to the deities, they would have understand, uh, understood from their background that, that the system is typically you, you bring an offering and you present it to the deity and you hope that you are granted mercy. Paul says, you've been granted mercy. Bring an offering. As a result of being granted mercy, bring yourself. Make yourself the offering. It's, it's very, very similar to the idea of, of the thank offering in the Old Testament, which I'm sure would have been a part of Paul's thinking. Bring yourself. You've already received amazing mercy from God. So present a sacrifice in response to that. And so, so what, what's the key? How do we stay on the altar, if you will, of, of self-death? How do we, how do we continue to, to be there, not crawl off? Karen, can we put that next slide up? Do not think of yourself, Paul says. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So, Talk with your neighbor for just a couple minutes. Why should the faith we receive from God result in sober self-judgment? That make sense? Why is the faith that we receive from God result in ourselves being very sober? Another word would be realistic or honest or truthful about ourselves. Talk with your neighbor about that for just a minute. Really key concept buried in this text. Okay, let's talk about it for a couple minutes. What did your neighbor think? Or what did you tell your neighbor? What do you think? And we are special. Yes. Thank you. We can go home. <laughs> yes. We, somehow or another, we will make it about us. It's just, that is, that is default mode. Jesus was, was always about the condition of the human heart, wasn't he? And, and that soils parable is, is a great illustration of that. Okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent. Someone else? Yeah, yeah, good, good observation. Really, you don't? <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. You know, and, and what I'm fascinated with in this text, and we're going to come to that a little bit, is... is who this addresses to. Um, that, I think, is, is very, very significant. Simply put, no one deserves anything from God if I read the Scriptures clearly, but judgment for a heart's rebellion against Him as Creator. We've been there together in Romans 1 as a part of this, this series We don't deserve anything but God's judgment. And yet, Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians, 
It's by grace. You've been saved. Through faith. And this, meaning the faith to believe in Jesus, this is not even from yourselves, Paul said. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. That's another piece of this journey that we've looked at as well, that boasting is never appropriate for humanity because we are created by the one who made us for himself. Jeremiah said, if you're going to boast, boast in this, that you, that you know God, that you have relationship and understanding of who God is. Boast in the Lord and in his strength and in his character. Boasting is never acceptable for the people of God. And, and we can ask those questions like, well, is it okay to, to be confident in the things that I'm good at? Well, I think it is if our heart's in the right place when we feel that confidence, when we recognize, wow, God has given me abilities in this way or in that way. God is the one who's given me this particular talent uh, to be who I am. Is there, is there a confidence that is rooted in our awareness that God has done for me all that I have. He has made me all that I am. I don't see how we can go anywhere else with that question of, well, is it ever okay to be confident in the fact that I'm good at this or I'm gifted at this? No, if our heart's in the right place. If we're giving credit to the one to whom credit is due. Remember the Romans 1 text. Humanity stands in judgment before God because they've neither glorified God or what? Given thanks. God is deserving of the thanks of his creation. And we as the redeemed, we know that and therefore we are without any excuse. God does not grade nor does he distribute grace on a curve. Everyone, according to scripture, everyone fails the test and everyone is undeserving of his grace. Even the faith that we exercise to believe in his grace, that too is a gift. The Holy Spirit awakens in us our need of a Savior and gives us the ability to believe. That is what faith is, to believe that Jesus will save us. Paul says that the response to the amazing and undeserved grace of God is a serious, intentional, fully aware offering of ourselves to him who has done this for us. And from that verse that is our creed in Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. This is what he's talking about to the Romans. Daily surrender, daily sacrifice, in our thinking, moment to moment, we get on the altar and give ourselves with confidence to the one who gave himself for us. That make sense? And, and the altar, I would suggest to you, the altar is really self-thinking. That's where we need to go in our scrutiny of ourselves, opening up our thinking to the Spirit of God in terms of how we're thinking about ourselves, how we're thinking about others. The battleground is in the mind. 
God's glory needs to be our highest priority. Which means then that our treatment of others is going to be our next highest priority because that is to whom we make God's glory known. To those who watch our lives, to those who are in relationship with us, be it a, a serious, lifelong kind of relationship, we know one another well, or, or casual. The goal is to make him known. We've looked at that in, in First Peter together, that he called us out of the darkness into his wonderful light so that we could declare the praises of him for doing that very thing. God, in making his glory known, is our priority. He is most important. We are not. His glory is all that matters, not ours. We need to be concerned with what people think about God and not us. And every day, there are dozens, no, there are probably hundreds, maybe thousands of challenges to our staying on the altar of death to self. Think about your day. What's your typical day like for you during the week? Picture where you're at and who you relate to. And what are the thoughts that you have in relationship to certain people? Certain responses, certain situations that you know are coming. That's that's just the, that's kind of the, 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 the drama that plays out for us, but the battle is really in our heads. How do we respond to those persons? How do we respond to those circumstances? How do we think about ourselves? And I often wonder, why is it that I think about myself so much? So let me tell you what I find so fascinating about this text. The folks that are receiving this letter, reading the exhortation to to get on the altar and stay on the altar by the power of the Spirit, to think differently about God and others and self by the power of the Spirit, those folks are believers in Rome. (laughs) You knew that, right? Duh. But, But listen again, listen again what Paul says. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, Every one of you, believers, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and those members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. You hear what he's saying there? He's directing the exhortation to get on the altar to think of God more than we think of ourselves, to think of others more than we think of ourselves. He's directing this to the relationship of believer to believer. He's saying to the believers in the church of Rome, this is the way you need to think about yourself, about God, and about one another. I think Paul is saying that the primary place that we need to die to self is in relationships with one another as God's people. I think it's the testing ground. A couple of reasons for that. Well, one, we're familiar with with Jesus' words when he told his his followers in 
in John 13 that the world's going to know that you're my followers, my disciples, by the way that you love one another. That's pretty significant. Paul knew that. But I also think that the, the reason that he, that he put this in writing to the Romans is because it's just plain hard. It's just flat out the most difficult thing that we face as followers of Jesus. What I mean is this. We all have the same instruction manual, but we don't come out looking and acting the same. That bugs the heck out of me. You ought to be like me. Because my life would be so much easier. And you can relate to how I feel, can't you? That's where the testing ground is, the proving ground. It would be so much easier if we all thought and acted the same way. I'd never have to deal with any hurtful things that you might say. Or I wouldn't have to be concerned that you are thinking wrong things about me. Or whether or not you like me. You just wouldn't do anything that would cause me to think those negative things. Because I wouldn't do that to you. That's the way we want it to work. But it doesn't. You see what Paul is getting at when he exhorts the Roman believers and exhorts us to think about ourselves with sober judgment according to the grace that God has given us? We place expectations upon others who we know are followers of Jesus and they do the same to us. I have this image in my mind of how a Christian looks and acts and lives. And so do you. And so when problems come in relationships within the body of Christ, we struggle to let it go because those things are not supposed to happen. You're not supposed to say hurtful things to me. I'm not supposed to say hurtful things to you. But I do. And so do you. Get over it because we're dead. (laughs) But it's the hardest thing in the world because we set the standard higher Because we know that we're indwelled by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so you have expectations of me because I'm indwelled by the Spirit of God. And boy, do I have expectations of you. Because you, too, are indwelled by the Spirit of God. You you see where this gets so difficult? There is an enemy who opposes all that we stand for. He hates God. And he hates those who have been embraced by the grace of God. Last week I I suggested to you that that this death to self is not a part-time deal. We don't categorize our lives and say, well, that's my church life and here's my work life, my school life, my family life. No! We want to be fully integrated, fully devoted followers of Jesus. That means that we are walking through every moment of every day realizing that my flesh wants to live out loud, baby, but it needs to die at every turn, at every voice, at every comment, at every circumstance. It's a daily moment-to-moment deal because our lives are always being watched by the powers of darkness. Forget the other folks for a minute who are out there in flesh and blood who are watching us. The powers of darkness are watching us all the time. And they'll do anything that they can do to break relationships between God's people. Anything. And they have easy fodder when they start poking around in those places of our human heart that we are not laying on the altar and surrendering to Jesus on a daily basis. And I picture 
the enemy of God and his hordes coming before the face of God and throwing it at him and saying, grace, what a joke. A lot of difference it's making in their lives. That to me is one of the most significant convicting reasons as the people of God to be conscious about laying ourselves on the altar, opening our hearts and our minds to the probing of the Spirit. I believe the community of believers is is the testing ground for self-death. I think we can measure how well we're doing by the way that we respond to God's people when they disappoint us, when they don't measure up to how we think they ought to be. True confession. I was nasty to my wife last night. And I didn't want to tell you this story. But you know what? I need to. Spirit brought it to my mind. We'd been working at our our kids' house yesterday, helping them move into their house. And I got to tell you, I was exhausted last night. So tired. I was so absorbed in thoughts about me. It just went down the road for miles, miles and miles of thoughts about me. And so I made a comment, and Sharice's comment back to me was, in my mind, stupid. (laughs) And then my thoughts played out, don't you understand what I've just done all day? Oh, by the way, guys, she's been doing the same thing all day. You know, doesn't she understand how tired I am? Oh, but she's not tired because she's superwoman. Yeah, and, and so in my mind, in just the space of a few seconds, this stuff plays out. And it came right out of the cesspool of my mind. And you'll be happy to know I apologize to my wife. Immediately, it was as if the Spirit of God said to me, whoa, where did that come from? Well, I know where it came from. That's the work of God's Spirit in our lives. You know, wouldn't the enemy love to put a wedge in a marriage relationship? Wouldn't the enemy love to put a wedge between two best friends who are followers of Jesus? Wouldn't the enemy love to put wedges in congregations because they differ over things that ultimately are secondary? 